It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero Science and Solutions show. Coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. You can also follow us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. My name's Kay Wenigal and I'm joined by my co-hosts Michael Steindl and Natalie Bucknell. Hi Kay, hi listeners. Hi Kay and Ned. Today we're going to be talking to Catherine Wilkinson, Doctor of Philosophy, who is Senior Writer at Project Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. People around the world are very hungry for practical solution and wisdom and knowledge on how to address climate change. Until now, there's been no real way for ordinary people to understand what the effects of climate change are across all sectors and what they can do to help manage the crisis. This book has changed all that. And we can thank Catherine, who helped bring Drawdown to life and to the world and translate research into message. Based on her doctoral research at Oxford, Catherine published Between God and Green, How Evangelicals Are Cultivating a Middle Ground on Climate Change, called a vitally important, even subversive story by the Boston Globe. Hello, Catherine, and thanks for joining us. Hi, all. Thanks so much for having me. First of all, congratulations on this book. Thank you very much. It was a massive undertaking by maybe a slightly bonkers, but very passionate coalition of folks who worked on it. So we're thrilled that it's out in the world and into hands like yours. (laughs) Well, the title drawdown refers to drawing down greenhouse gases from the atmosphere, which is now so necessary as we've reached a stage of crisis or climate emergency, as most people are calling it, whereby just reducing our emissions isn't enough to save our planet from catastrophic warming. So was that the genesis of the book? The genesis of the book goes back in time some years. Our founder and kind of visionary behind the work of Project Drawdown is Paul Hawken, uh, who many may know as a a thought leader, author, entrepreneur in the sustainability space. And for many years, Paul was, was sort of plagued by this lingering question of, do we actually know what we're supposed to be doing? Do we actually know kind of what tools are in the toolbox of humanity to, to draw down carbon and, and to reverse global warming? And there's this growing mountain of, of literature about what is happening on our planet mm. and what is likely to happen on our planet if, if climate change goes uh, unaddressed. Um, and, and so Paul c- continued to have this conversation periodically with various in- environmental NGOs and other experts you know, do we have a list? Do we need a list? Yeah, folks said um, that would be really helpful. A list would be great. Uh, we're not going to take that on. We, we don't have the capacity or mm-hmm. um, the know-how or uh, the resources. And so it sort of languished for some years. And, and then around 2012, 2013, when there were some interesting moments in the climate movement, it, in particular, Bill McKibben published an article in Rolling Stone about global warming's terrifying new math, uh, right, which which many folks may remember, Mm -hmm. uh, essentially communicating publicly some pretty powerful research about what the carbon budget of the atmosphere is and how much 
carbon is in fossil fuel reserves that have yet to be to be mined and burned and sort of the mess that that leaves us in the, the kind of untenable mass that that does for the planet and folks were just looking at that and saying look it's game over you know we have given it our best the the planet it seems is literally toast and and we should just kind of hunker down <laughs> um, in, until the end comes and Paul <laughs> being Paul just was willing to say well hang on before we say and accept that it's game over. Let's actually investigate. Let's let's do the other math on on what is possible before before we sort of sign off and say, yep, yep, it's impossible. We can't do it. Mm. Um, let's actually ask that question about what's in the toolbox um, and how much impact can it have. It's actually um, remarkably analogous to our work here at BZE, Catherine. BZE was founded about ten years ago and said, what does Australia have to do to get zero emissions in ten years? and have prepared a series of reports. They started off with the stationary energy plan, which said how we could convert all of our stationary energy generation, in, including about 50% more to allow for electrification transport, and so on with half a dozen reports building land use. I'll just uh, say a couple of things. I, I, I love the synergy there um, because it means that, well, I think it will be a rich conversation, but also I, I think that you all were obviously on on the vanguard of turning this focus to to solutions a, a decade ago, and I think it's such an important one for for the climate movement. You know, in in many ways, we have been telling this sort of dominant narrative about about climate change that things are bad; they're going to get very very mm. bad. Um, we're quite ill-equipped as a species to handle this problem please change your light bulbs and also cross your fingers for some sort of <laughs> geoengineering <laughs> solution um, and maybe a price on carbon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I think that has left people feeling overwhelmed, scared, guilty, depressed, confused, paralyzed, right? A, a whole host of uh, emotions that are not at all a good foundation for action. They're a pretty good foundation for like cover your ears and your scared. eyes and, yeah. um, and, and stick your head in the sand. Not to mention, I think the the magnitude of the problem has often seemed very out of sync with the magnitude of the solutions proposed, at least at the individual level, right? Uh, yeah. Recycling Coke cans and changing light bulbs seems like, really, is that, can we avert catastrophe by, by just doing those things? And I, I think implicit in, in all of that narrative, um, the, the sort of I have a nightmare speech, I think, that the climate movement has has been giving mm -hmm. is that human beings are terrible, horrible, no good, very bad, greedy, lazy, incompetent, intransigent, <laughs> and, and all the rest. And I think what's so important about the focus on solutions is not just, of course, that they're solutions, right? They are the ways we may actually turn things around on global warming, but they also are the other side of the story that I think we have to hear and believe about human beings to actually be really be willing to take this work on. Yeah. Yeah. So so you and Paul and many others brought together eighty key solutions. So what was the process that you used to canvas and uh, examine those different solutions, Catherine? So the, the book actually contains a hundred solutions. Oh one hundred, sorry. Eighty of yes. A hundred. Yeah. So, um, but 80, you're right. 80 are, uh, what you might call kind of trains that have already left the station. <laughs> so they are technologies and practices that are, um, in motion, they're scaling, they're proven. We understand them. We have good data about them, um, from which we can 
assess their possible growth trajectories, right, and and impact. So that list of 80 um, really came out of, you know, kind of canvassing, if you will, the, the collective wisdom of humanity. So our team certainly didn't set out to invent a, a plan um, or, or pull a plan out of thin air. And instead, what we did was, um, was really look at, at what we already know as human beings, kind of the plan that we've been developing without realizing that that's, that's what we were doing. And so the 80 kind of developed, there were some solutions that seemed promising and then fell off the list and others that got added as we went. So it was both a a kind of canvassing and then also the process of diving in and and doing the math. And then the other 20 of the solutions in the book are what we call coming attractions. So they are things that are nascent on the horizon, still a bit um, in, in research and development. Basically, we, we don't have adequate data from which to make the same kind of projections we did for the other 80. So there are no numbers tied to those coming attractions, but um, it's, it's likely that we'll get help from at least some of them over the coming decades. And how's the book been received so far, Catherine? It's been a, a, a wonderfully enthusiastic reception, which I, I think is partially just because there was so much white space in this world of solutions and particularly such a, a comprehensive you know, landscape level view of the solutions. And the, the subtitle of the book, The Most Comprehensive Plan Ever Proposed to Reverse Global Warming, uh, may seem a bit brash to some. And, and the truth is we could have said it was the most almost anything uh, plan proposed to reverse global warming because there hadn't been a plan to go beyond slowing or stopping emissions before this work. So I think people have been really excited about that. Mm. The accessibility of the work has been really appealing to folks. And then just a, a message of courage hope, a sense of can do and, and sort of that other side of the story that, that I was just mentioning that human beings are not just terrible, horrible, mm. no good, very bad. We're also creative, compassionate, collaborative, sometimes gutsy and brilliant. Um, and I think folks who spend a lot of their days or, or a lot of their, you know, sort of energy thinking about or, or working on these issues have felt really lifted up by this work. So that's that's been yeah, really exciting. That, that is great. Just briefly, did you have a target audience? Was it more aimed at the individual or at governments and institutions? We had a, a, a sort of everything in the kitchen sink <laughs> um, um, approach to, to audiences. So we, yep. we really tried to write the book in a way that would be accessible to almost anyone, right? So it doesn't presume uh, any kind of knowledge ahead of time about the issue, about the solutions. We were very conscious about trying to strip out a jargon. You won't see CO2 anywhere uh, in the book. And you know, to work kind of in that space um, and in, in the classroom, certainly. But we also hoped that the work would be in, informative and and helpful for policymakers, for institutions that are making decisions about what solutions do they personally invest in, you know, as an institution or what sorts of things do they p- put money into, let's say, if it's a, a philanthropy. So we hope that it works across all those different audiences. And, mm-hmm. and the book, I should say, is complemented by 
a digital platform that we're still building and, and rolling out. So That's ultimately, all of the the models, all of the analysis that was done um, will be live on the website and you'll be able to kind of pop the hood and play with the assumptions okay. yourself um, and, and kind of see, see what that does with the math. Great. Right. And um, in the book, you say that if the solutions are deployed collectively over the next 30 years on a global scale, then we can reach a point of drawdown of CHG, global greenhouse gases, um, which promises cascading benefits in many areas such as health, security, well-being, etc. Does that mean anything in terms of the um, temperature level that we get to? It's a great it's a great question, and I'll just say by by way of definition. So the the term drawdown as we use it refers to that point in time at which greenhouse gases could hopefully do peak and then begin to decline on a year-to-year basis. So that concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere hits a tipping point, and we call that tipping point drawdown. Mm -hmm. And you'll see in the book, there are are numbers tied to each solution, including the gigatons of emissions reduction that particular solution can achieve by 2050. But we actually ran three different scenarios for the models and the kind of most conservative scenario we call the plausible scenario. So this is these solutions are scaled vigorously, but very plausibly uh, over the next three decades. And that scenario actually does not quite get us to draw down by 2050. There are two other uh, slightly more aggressive, but still very viable scenarios. One the drawdown scenario, which essentially optimizes the solutions to achieve drawdown and and then optimum pushes a bit farther. So there are multiple um, kind of trajectories there in the analysis. We sort of don't look at climate or temperature impacts um, beyond looking at those those gigatons of emissions. So that's a, a direction we hope that future research will take. For those listeners who have just joined us, this is the BZE Climate Solutions Show and we're talking to senior writer Catherine Wilkinson about the exciting new book called Drawdown. Catherine, you, you ranked the top 100 most substantive existing solutions which didn't need anything to be invented. Can you tell us about the ranking process? Sure. So the, the rankings are based purely on the, the gigatons of emissions reduction for, for each solution. You had to do all those calculations, a massive amount of work to do that research, I would expect. That's right. So there are, are models for, for each of the solutions um, that look at its potential climate impact. So the gigatons of emissions it can reduce between now and 2050 compared to uh, a kind of reference case in which very little changes we also look at the cost to implement the solutions, so the, the incremental cost to implement beyond a business-as-usual technology, and then also we look at the operational cost, or in most cases, savings, uh, driven by that solution over, over three decades. So you could rank them in different ways. The, the way that they are ranked in the book um, ties to that, that first piece of analysis around, around their climate impact. Terrific. So of those solutions, Catherine... Um, let's focus on the top 10 for the program today. And if you could start by just listing that top 10 to us, and then we can go through and, and briefly explore each of those top 10. That sounds great. So uh, we'll, we'll start from 10 and count down, perhaps. Okay. <laughs> uh, so we'll start from 10 and count down. 
Number 10 is rooftop solar, which falls under the energy sector at just under 25 gigatons of climate impact. Number nine is silvopasture. Uh, for folks that don't know, silvopasture is the combination of trees and livestock, which falls under the food sector at uh, about 31 gigatons. Solar farms come in at number eight. So we broke apart rooftop and solar farms, also under energy at just under 37 gigatons. Number seven is family planning, falls under the women and girls sector at just under 60 gigatons. Educating girls, also under women and girls, is number six, again, just uh, under 60 gigatons. Number five is uh, tropical forest restoration, which falls under the land use sector at about 61 gigatons. Number four is plant-rich diets, again, falls under the food sector at around 66 gigatons. Number three is reduced food waste, also under food at uh, just over 70 gigatons. Number two is onshore wind turbines, also under energy at just under 85 gigatons. And number one is the deeply unsexy uh, refrigeration management. Um, so the management of, of refrigerant chemicals, which falls under the materials sector, and that comes in at almost 90 gigatons. Well, so some of those are not Very intuitive. Yeah, results, they're they? sort of surprising, not, not what you would expect first up. And, and an interesting mix of you know, technical and social, uh, social practice. practice. So, yeah, really fascinating. So the, the, let's start with the unsexy one then get that out of the way. But um, <laughs> refrigerant management. So, yeah, tell us why, why is that so significant? Sure. So, so folks will probably remember, uh, especially in Australia, the Montreal Protocol, which mm-hmm. uh, was passed in, in 1987 or, or adopted in 1987, which is focused on phasing out the use of ozone-destroying chemicals, including uh, CFCs, which were the, the kind of primary refrigerant chemical used in um, air conditioning units and, and refrigerators and cold chains. And the primary replacement chemical for CFCs is uh, HFCs, uh, hydrofluorocarbons, which are uh, have almost no detrimental impact on the ozone layer, which is great, but they are a thousand or, or more times more powerful uh, in terms of their global warming potential compared to carbon dioxide. So, so, so we shot ourselves solved, in the foot solved there. Solved one problem, <laughs> yeah, uh, cr- created another. And... Um, uh, last fall, officials around the world uh, came together in Kigali, Rwanda, and agreed to amend the Montreal Protocol to phase out HFCs over over the coming decades, which scientists think will reduce global warming by about half a degree Celsius unto itself. Mm-hmm. What our number looks at here is even as we get to that phase out of HFCs, we've got a lot of them already in circulation and more will be coming before we get to the phase out. So what can we do in terms of proper management and particularly proper disposal of HFCs already in circulation? Uh, Because disposal is the point at which about 90% of of emissions occur. So the impact here is in addition to to what will be accomplished by the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Mm. Protocol. And that comes in as the number one thing we can do. That is the number one, yeah. Yeah. And just to put it in perspective, (laughs) it seems like, from what I can understand, humans are adding about 30 gigaton of um, greenhouse emissions per year to the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that 
the 90 gigatons that would be saved with refrigerant management. Yep. So that's over 30 years. Over that's 30 years. Okay. Uh, 2020 and 2050. So after the um, refrigerant one, food waste is one that jumps out, 70 gigaton of CO2, which is um, what about 8% of emissions? Global emissions. Yeah, 70 gigaton over that 30 years. It's amazing to think that food waste can lead to reducing food waste can lead to such a reduction in CO2. What what's happening there with the food waste? It's a it's it's a powerful and I think also surprising solution. So and I'll just set it in context. Actually, the food sector is eight out of the top twenty. Energy is only five out of the top twenty, and the wow. food sector is the largest uh, largest emissions reduction of of any of the sectors that we modeled. So. It's a, a really interesting kind of aha and insight overall about about how important food is in mm. terms of, of addressing climate change. Um, you know, we, we often think that like reversing global warming, well, we just need to um, address our energy use and, and, and energy efficiency and transportation. And that's sort of that's what the puzzle looks like. Um, and actually, no, in fact, we, we really need to look at the food sector as well, which includes what we produce, how we produce it, but also, of course, reducing how much we waste. So about a third of the food that we produce around the world is not consumed. And I would suggest to, to folks listening, if you've never done it, Google photos of food waste, and you'll be quite horrified, I think. That waste drives about 8% of our annual greenhouse gas emissions. And that's because at every stage, right, that, that food is being produced, processed, shipped, stored, cooked, et cetera, et cetera, you're using a host of resources, seeds, water, energy, land, fertilizer, labor, uh, capital, of course, and there are greenhouse gases that come with, with many of those things. And then those greenhouse gases also include methane. If you have decomposing organic matter that's not processed through mm -hmm. uh, composting, let's say, or a methane digester. So add on to that, you may also then have further deforestation for additional farmland to make more food that we don't eat. So it's these many dynamics that are at work that make food waste such a, a, a large and powerful solution. Mm. Another one you talk about is a plant-rich diet, which saves about 66 gigatons. That's pretty amazing because you say that if cattle were their own nation, they'd be the third largest greenhouse emitter. How do we solve that? That's right. So r ruminants, cows and, and, and sheep and the like are sort of the, the most prolific offenders, if you will, within, uh, within the livestock sector. But, but livestock in total produce their, the estimates vary, but, but roughly a fifth of global emissions um, come from, from raising livestock. But ruminants in particular generate methane as, as they digest. And that's, that's why, why cattle, as you said, if they were their own nation, would, would clock in num number three um, as, as largest emitter of, of greenhouse gases. So what we look at in, in plant-rich diets is uh, essentially a mathematical approach to what Michael Pollan famously wrote, which is eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Um, so we haven't looked here at a strict vegetarian or a vegan diet, but we have looked at kind of a, an adoption of a, a healthier, more plant-based, less animal protein-focused diet, although we've also allowed for in, in places in the world where people are not getting enough protein or enough calories, 
having those those things actually rise. So um, both of those are, are taken into account here. Catherine, silvopasture, a new term to me, number nine in terms of reduced emissions at 31 gigaton over the 30 years. You say your research points to silvopasture outstripping grassland techniques for counteracting livestock methane and sequestering carbon. Can you tell us how it works and, and whether you can still farm at the same intensity as with grassland? Sure. So we often think, right, that cows and trees don't belong together. But but it turns out that actually combining livestock and trees creates a really symbiotic system, um, both ecologically in terms of the health of the land, the animals growing on it, but also for farmers. Um, it, it may give you then uh, two or, or more crops that are, are happening on different timelines um, mm-hmm. and, and insulating you from a bit of risk, right? If you've got, let's say, yep. nut trees growing at the same time as you have cattle uh, grazing on, on the land around them. And the piece that's so powerful from a, from a climate perspective is that silvopasture systems sequester five to 10 times more carbon than than a treeless pasture. So it's that it's really the power of trees engaging, of course, in photosynthesis, but also creating healthier microbiomes in Mm -hmm. in soil that end up pulling more carbon down uh, and and holding it in in biomass and soil. So moving away from agriculture, another theme is around educating girls and family planning. That's mm-hmm. really interesting as well, the amount of savings that's predicted from that. You're saying about 120 gigatons of carbon dioxide. Tell us a bit more about those issues and the impact they have on our greenhouse gas emissions. I'd, I'd love to. These are um, This whole section around women and girls is, is really near and dear to my heart. So it's just three solutions, educating girls, family planning, and then a third that's focused on women smallholder farmers. And what ties those three solutions together is that they're focused on women's autonomy, dignity, opportunity, and rights. So it turns out that dress, addressing specific gender inequities um, and securing the rights of women and girls and enhancing their well-being these things end up having positive ripple effects for society and the planet. And in particular, closing the gap around access to education all the way through secondary school and closing the gap around access to contraception and and family planning, the, the need for that that women say they have and isn't filled, both of those things end up impacting uh, birth rates and, and thus population. So the difference between uh, a woman with no years of, of schooling compared to 12 years of schooling can be around four to five children per woman, which is uh, some research that came out of the Brookings Institution. So women who stay in school longer choose to have fewer children. Those children are, are healthier and, and they more actively engage in, in their reproductive health and, and kind of managing the, the spacing and, and number of children that they have. Um, and of course, that means that education uh, is knit hand in hand with family planning, which is, of course, the, you know, the technology, if you will, that actually uh, allows for that spacing and, and planning to be done. So we've split, of course, here, educating girls and and family planning, Mm. and we've simply split it down the middle because it's hard to tell when uh, one leaves off and the other begins because they're so synergistic. But if you Mm. added them together, Mm -hmm. then empowering women and girls would be the number one solution to global warming. Yeah, yeah. 
you need to step back and think about that, don't you? You do. <laughs> um, as I was saying, we're just about out of time. Airplane emissions are about 2.5% of annual emissions, and you mentioned a couple of ways of increasing their efficiency. Is, is there any work being done on changing fuels, such as biofuels? So the numbers that you'll see in the book under airplanes uh, don't look at alternative fuels, but you'll see in the copy around airplanes that we do talk a little bit about of what may be coming down the pike that ultimately could augment the emissions impacts that that are shown here um, right around five gigatons by 2050. I think it's just good to highlight the because air travel is increasing and no one seems to be concentrating or focusing on on the emissions in that area. So many of the solutions we've discussed have proven effective at reducing emissions, but actually drawing down existing CO2 is a step further. What are the predominant actions that significantly reduce CO2 in the atmosphere? So there are two sectors that are really important on that front. Uh, one is food and the other is, is land use. So under, under food, specifically agricultural practices like silvopasture that are more powerful in terms of their capacity to sequester carbon. Under land use, the, the top three within that sector are forest restoration of tropical forest, number five, and temperate forest, which is solution number 12 as well as uh, peatlands, so so increasing the acreage of protected peatlands around the world. We asked earlier about what the other steps are, because on your website you said that the book is only part of your story and then you're talking about the, the other aspect. Can you just repeat that for our listeners so that they know where they can find some more information? Yes, if people visit our, our website, which is www.drawdown.org, you can find our evolving and growing digital platform, which has uh, some content about all of the solutions and we'll be adding more and more technical content and open source models as the months go on. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Catherine. It's been absolutely fascinating and a fantastic book. I'm yeah. really excited. We wish we had double the time, actually. <laughs> Keep feeling we didn't explore your answers as much as we'd like to. Thank you all so much. This is the the uh, the challenge always of the most comprehensive plan ever proposed, <laughs> um, and, and trying to talk about it in, in shorter periods. Yeah, of time. if you're if you're old enough to me- remember Monty Python, it was how to save the world, and you, first you become really famous, then you tell everyone what to do. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, I, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me. Thank, Thank you. Bye. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to listen to this show or any others we've done, you can go to www.bze.org.au and click on podcasts. Thanks again for listening and we hope to catch you again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.